this week on the Back Table Podcast. So if when I do the physical exam, I look visually to see if there's a tie. But to me, what matters a lot more is the functional exam. And tell me how y'all do this. But I, I use a gloved finger and I stick it on in there and kind of tickle the palate to try and stimulate the suckle response. And then I feel the tongue move and I try to see how good of a hold baby has on my finger as kind of a surrogate for how much suction they're, they're um, able to generate. But then also, you know, there's a, there's a thought that what's as important as the suction is actually the massaging movement mm. from posteriorly to anteriorly of the tongue, sort of coaxing milk out of those ductules. Yeah. And so if I don't feel that tongue kind of undulating in a coordinated fashion from posterior to anterior, I don't know that I that I think that cutting the frenulum is going to help a ton. Welcome back to the Back Table ENT podcast, um, where we talk about all things ENT and more. I'm your host today, Gopi Shaw, and I have my co-host today, Ashley Agan. Hi there. Today we have a very special guest, Felicity Lenace Voigt. Felicity was a resident in our program at UT Southwestern and one of our fellows in pediatric otolaryngology, and she's become one of our friends and colleagues. Welcome to the show, Felicity. Thank you guys so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Um, today, we're going to talk about uh, ankyloglossia or tongue tie. Um, Felicity is, really is one of our clinical experts in tongue tie and lactation and lingual frenulectomies. So welcome. First, thought it'd be just interesting for you to tell us a little bit about your practice, Felicity, and then how your, int your interest in tongue tie. Well, I got interested in tongue tie in a sort of selfish way because I had a baby and was a resident and was trying to figure out how to be a surgical trainee and still breastfeed my baby and pump and all that kind of thing. And so did a lot of reading on the side, joined a support group that's available on social media called Dr. Milk, which was started by a pediatrician and breastfeeding medicine specialist in Arizona. And just kind of started reading more and more and realized that this might be a way that I could help some mommies and babies because it's really hard when, you know, you're having trouble feeding your baby. And so it sort of started as a, as a selfish thing and then became a little more, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's selfish. <laughs> I don't think it's selfish at all. Uh, I, I think it's probably one of the hardest things and nobody really talks about it. And so you know, and from, you know, from a personal level, obviously it's, it's very difficult. It can be very difficult and it can create a lot of guilt and frustration. And, you know, you're a new mom and then you're just trying to feed this baby on a professional level to be able to, you know, understand and understand how we can be helpful. I think that is great. There are a lot of things uh, about taking care of a dyad that are really attractive to me. I love taking care of kids, um, which is part of the reason that I did a pediatrics fellowship and I'm cultivating a practice taking care of kids. But I also trained for five years as an otolaryngologist and took care of a lot of adults. And so I enjoy the opportunity to sort of have two patients 
when I'm taking care of a breastfeeding dyad and be thinking about mom's factors too and kind of stretching myself because I'm thinking about um, thyroid status and I'm thinking about, you know, factors related to a mom's delivery experience. And occasionally, even if I'm worried about low supply, asking about birth control, which is definitely not something that I anticipated would be a question that I'd be asking in my clinical practice, practice as an otolaryngologist. But it's good for me to, to keep thinking about all of that, thinking about the pituitary, thinking about um, the really complex interplay of mechanical and anatomical factors, which I think about all the time as a surgeon, and the way that that interacts with the hormone pathways and the feedback mechanisms. And then just, just thinking about how I can be supportive on an emotional level for moms who, who like Gobi said, this is a, it's a hard thing. Yeah. And, and most of these, nobody most, tells you, no, nobody tells you you aren't prepared. You know, there, there's not a lot of availability of lactation consulting. I mean, there, certainly there are some really wonderful lactation consultants, but it's kind of hard to get plugged in. Yeah. And certainly in a timely fashion and you're, you just, you know, you kind of, you can be in a situation where you feel kind of bewildered. And so um, let's take a step back. I would love to hear more about the mother as a patient as well, in the sense of tell us just specific concrete things that, you know, you what's part of your H&P, like in clinic when the baby mom comes in, let's say it's the, you know, two week old baby. Mm -hmm. through some, just what's your H&P? So, you know, I, I have a long, smart phrase in Epic that I use to kind of evaluate. And of course, the, the first things that I'm looking for are signs that there might be a latch issue because that's directly related to the baby, you know, the baby's ability to extract milk. But then there are also reasons why maybe baby's doing fine, but, but mom may not have as good a supply. And of course, it's it's kind of difficult to tease that out because it could also be related to negative feedback from baby not doing a great job extracting because of a tie or a poor tone or any other reason. But I ask mom about her thyroid status in pregnancy, which is something that all OBs test for. Of course, I ask about baby's birth weight and how long it took for baby to regain birth weight. I ask her if she's breastfeeding, if her, if her breasts feel full before a feed and then empty afterwards, this is more on the baby side, but I ask about the, the suck, swallow, breathe sequencing to make sure that baby's sucking a few times, then swallowing, then breathing rather than just suck, 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 suck. And don't, you know, not really needing to swallow because that can be an indicator that they're not extracting very much milk. I've had a couple of moms who make so much milk and they're coming to me because of difficulty eating. And it, it turns out not that the baby doesn't have a tongue tie. It's just that mom has so much milk that the baby's almost choking on it because there's either a forceful letdown or there's just so much milk the baby's kind of overwhelmed by it. And usually that's in younger babies. Usually as, as babies get older, they can handle fast flow a little bit better or they come up with mechanisms to deal with it. So I ha have one, one mom who said baby will latch and then she'll just pull off and she'll let milk spray her in the face. 
And then once it calms down a little bit, then she'll latch again. And she thought that was a sign of a tongue tie. And I was able to help her realize that, no, you know, yeah. baby's baby's great at getting milk out and you have a great milk supply. Right. So and great. the fact that baby's trying to drink from a fire hose. And so and then, you know, then we can then we can um, talk about strategies to deal with that. I end up sometimes, you know, doing almost more counseling during my visits than I do sort of the physical exam, you know, sort of procedure stuff, because it, I would say more than half the time, the big issue is probably not a tongue tie. It's something else related to feeding and tongue tie might be a contributing factor, but it's pretty rare. I think that it's the only consideration for a dyad. Right. What other things do you um, take into consideration? So, you know, some people have different responses to birth control. There's not there's not a lot of great evidence to support that in populations, either estrogen containing birth control or something like the depo shot or uh, progesterone implant affects supply. But um, some moms swear that it does. And so I always ask about it just to have it in the back of my head. Mm-hmm. If they had a prolonged induction, then the baby could have sort of falsely inflated birth weight. And especially in very young infants who haven't regained their birth weight yet, it's useful to know that because we might be shooting for a target that's falsely inflated and we might think there's a problem when there actually isn't. And so in that case, I'll try to see if we can if we can figure out what the 24-hour wait was, because that's more likely to be um, a little bit closer if the induction took longer than 24 hours and mom got, you know, a fair amount of fluids in labor. Mm-hmm. If mom had a C-section, that's a risk factor for potential delay of lactogenesis too. So the transition from colostrum to more mature milk. And so, and particularly if there's any hemorrhage that happens. And so I, I ask about skin to skin, mode of delivery. You know, no one ever has any idea. I'm sure, I mean, I, I don't know how many bags of fluids I got in labor either. But there, you know, as a general rule, if it took a long time, it's probably a little bit higher risk. Scheduled C-sections are higher risk for delay in lactogenesis than are sections where mom labored for a while and then had a section for failure to progress or some some form of fetal distress. But the trade-off is that when we're seeing those moms with, with really young babies, they're still pretty pretty exhausted from the process of laboring and then having a section. So, it's, you know, it can be hard to tease that out. The other thing is there's so many demands on a new mom's time. Sometimes it's something as simple as how much water are you drinking? And they're just not, they're not taking care of themselves because they're trying to take care of this baby. And then if they're not hydrating, they, you know, it's just hard to, it's hard to give baby hydration if you're dehydrated. Right. So I don't ask everyone all of those questions, but sort of according to how the history is going, those are, those are some things that I definitely do ask. I ask primate versus multip. Have you successfully breastfed a child before? And I find that the more kids that um, a mom has had that, and this is borne out by the evidence as well, 
the, the quicker milk usually comes in and the more sense they have as as far as, um, at least comparatively, what the quality of the latch is. So the quality of the latch is is related to if if there's if she's had multiple kids. Well, I, I think it, I interpreting that wrong. I think she just has more of an experience base to know what a normal latch is, and especially okay. in the beginning when you have a you have a small baby with a small mouth, there can be sort of a size mismatch between nipple and mouth, and even a a very mobile tongue. And non-retronathic chin and, you know, a good anatomy baby with, with a tongue that can be very mobile to extract milk might still have a hard time with latch and there might be painful latch. But something that's a warning sign for me is pain that lasts more than, you know, the first couple minutes or so of the feed. There's a lot written, in, you know, by lactation consultants about lipstick-shaped nipples. Right. And then cracked or fissured nipples are certainly something that I worry about. I worry about some. So when you're so when you're in the room with the patients, I mean, first of all, you're blowing my mind with how much uh, all the all the the history that you're you know kind of taking and, and delving into with with the mom and you know the the feeding and all the details there. I mean, I I know personally, I definitely I rely heavily on the on the weight and kind of the the charting of the weight to see is the baby gaining weight because obviously I'm a lot more concerned about a baby who is losing weight or not gaining weight than somebody who's you know staying on their uh, on track for for growth and then obviously there's the the physical exam are there any other are there any other big things that you are looking for that help you decide all right this is a baby who does need a frenulectomy, and this is a baby who needs more counseling. I I definitely agree that the physical exam and the weight are probably the overarching things. And I guess some of the history that I obtain is partly to guide how to counsel in addition to the, or some of it is to decide whether or not it's necessary. But some of it is that even if I'm going to do a frenulectomy, uh, I still feel like some of the counseling may may help if I know about some of those risk factors. And it's it's also possible that I'm totally gilding the lily and none of this is, you know, is necessary. And I'm just. No, I um, think that's great. I think all of this <laughs> play a role. Like, I'm sure that's why it's very too. important. And I think, you know, and you can go into this a little bit more, Felicity. You're the expert in, in terms, especially with the literature and your management, but I, I forget if it was a Cochrane review or one of the new, there's the new tongue tie clinical practice guidelines. And it talks about how pain, nipple pain, you can say, okay, frenulectomy may help your nipple pain. Yes. Other than That's that, absolutely I don't, right. I'm not sure. So I think the mother history, now that you make it very concrete and like, hey, this is very important. I'm like, ah, yes. You know what I mean? Like it is very important. And uh, so it, one of the things that's really hard for me about this field is that so much of it is based on sort of experience. And of course, I'm relatively new in my practice. And so I don't have a huge fund of experience to draw from, but I'm building it and I'm trying to learn all the time. But what's fr the reason that's a little bit tough is that there just isn't a lot of high quality evidence. And you are exactly right, Gopi. The, the only sort of 
conclusion that was able to be drawn from the most recent Cochrane review on the subject was that it, you know, doing a phrenotomy in an appropriate candidate does improve nipple pain for mom. And they couldn't find an improvement in terms of baby's growth or or anything like that on the baby side. And it's hard to know, you know, where the data quality issues are in that. But they were able to find that we can make mom feel better. And so then the question is, is, you know, is mom going to be comfortable doing, having us do a procedure on baby for her? And moms, you know, are often martyrs and, and don't want to do that. And so I, I try to head that off a little bit by reassuring them Obviously, if I think that a phrenotomy is appropriate, that, you know, I don't think it's an overly traumatic experience for the baby. When do you decide to go ahead and do the phrenotomy versus, you know what, maybe you're, y'all need to see a lactation consultant or have a speech evaluation? So if, when I do the physical exam, I look visually to see if there's a tie. But to me, what matters a lot more is the functional exam. And tell me how y'all do this. But I I use a gloved finger and I stick it on in there and kind of tickle the palate to try and stimulate the suckle response. And then I feel the tongue move and I try to see how good of a hold baby has on my finger as kind of a surrogate for how much suction they're they're um, able to generate, but then also, you know, there's a there's a thought that what's as important as the suction is actually the massaging movement mm. from posteriorly to anteriorly of the tongue, sort of coaxing milk out of those ductules. Yeah, and so if I don't feel that tongue kind of undulating in a coordinated fashion from posterior to anterior. I don't know that I've that I think that cutting the frenulum is going to help a ton. Of course, I look to see if they can stick their tongue out of their mouth, pass their gums, but that that hasn't been shown to be a, a totally helpful parameter in all cases. Yeah. And so I, I honestly don't know how much weight to put to that. I always document it, but I, I feel like the the sort of functional assessment is a little more reassuring for me if I'm going to recommend the procedure. Mm -hmm. There are some situations where baby seems to have torticollis, their jaw just seems really stiff, or they're having other symptoms that make me worried about swallowing or make me worried they have a laryngeal cleft or something like that. Yeah. And if I'm if I'm getting any sort of, you know, antennae signals that they have tone issues. Yeah. Or mom says anything that makes me think, oh, maybe they have sleep apnea. I I really am very reluctant, especially the first time I meet them, to do a procedure. I know that the clinical consensus statement wasn't all that worried about cutting a tongue tie um, being an issue for OSA, except for maybe in a, in in like a Pierre Robin, right? You know, airway the baby who were going to be worried about their airway anyway. Yeah, but I like a little bit more data in that situation. So if they just, if they seem, if something just seems a little off, 
then I I feel a whole lot better about having speech look at them first. And we're at Children's, we're, we're working towards, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but we're, we're working towards getting sort of a, a more integrated clinic that will eventually involve an outpatient lactation consultant and a speech therapist so that we can evaluate people together and have sort of almost like a multidisciplinary clinic that's a one-stop shop. And of course, it's going to start small. And until we sort of prove need, it's going to be really hard to get a lactation consultant because they're expensive. But I think that ultimately, if we can get that set up, it'll be really helpful for patients, particularly if we can get people in, you know, if we can have enough clinic sessions a month that we can get people in within the first few weeks of life and maybe keep keep them from setting up supply issues because right. baby isn't latching right and mom's not, you know, milk isn't being emptied and and so mom's supply goes down because it's a supply demand issue. And so I think those are the things that kind of make me wait. Although overall, I think it's a pretty low risk procedure. And particularly if a pediatrician who has referred me patients before and who who I you know, trust and and know has sent me a patient, my threshold to to do it is, you know, a little bit lower because I think that the the potential for harm is pretty low. Yeah, I agree. At the same time, it's very controversial to do phrenotomies to sort of prevent future potential speech impediments that yeah. are how do you counsel what do you tell the families that i come in because tongue tie was on the physical exam at the two-month checkup um, but they're not having feeding issues and yet they were told that well we, we just don't want them to have speech issues later on exactly i i find that a really difficult topic because people you know i i appreciate our colleagues so much and they're they're doing they're doing 40 well child checks a day and I don't you know I want us to be operating as a team and my reading of the literature is that there's no evidence that 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 is going to be a factor and so I really I have been telling families that my my strong recommendation is that we wait and see because we could potentially avoid a procedure for their child. And that, of course, is assuming that there aren't any other issues, you know, no feeding issues. I think that especially after their three months, when it gets a little bit trickier to do in clinic and would, would require an OR anesthesia and, and you know, general anesthesia event to do, that I, you know, I just don't think it's worth it unless they're having something else done. If the kid meets criteria for tubes, then, you know, I do still have a fairly low threshold, I think, to to do a phrenotomy concurrent with some other planned procedure because it doesn't add a lot of time or a lot of risk. But I'm really reluctant to put someone to sleep. I agree. Or a problem that may or may not materialize. And the evidence that's available, granted not high quality evidence, suggests that it's not, you know, that's not really going to probably be the most likely factor. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a big difference between doing it in clinic and having to go to the operating room and use general anesthesia and that sort of thing. And, you know, I think that it's it's a low risk to anesthesia, but there's still a risk. (laughs) Yeah, I, I, I find myself 
kind of yielding to to parents who really want it done when their child is young enough to have it done in clinic because it does feel like you know a a minor procedure you know it feels like almost like i don't know ears getting ears pierced or you know something maybe slightly more invasive than that but you know have you seen you know to kind of expand on that have, what kind of complications do you see or have you seen any um so I, I like to cut all the way back. If I'm doing it, I, I like to get all the way posterior and get that diamond of tissue in the floor of mouth. And so I haven't, I, I have had, I think, more bleeding from that than, than sometimes, you know, may happen if you, if you don't do that. But it, it has always stopped with pressure. I haven't had any issues. I have read case reports of babies getting cardiac toxicity from topical lidocaine because it's just so hard to dose in a little bitty infant and sublingual um, absorption is first pass and it's, you know, kind of unpredictable and very efficient. And then, you know, reports of methemoglobinemia if you use, what is it, like an ester-based topical anesthetic. I've also, there's a case report of a baby getting a staph floor of mouth wound infection. Sounds I know. There's only, I only, I've only seen one, but it, it made me, when I, when I read it, I was like, okay, well, keep that in the back of your mind for if, mm-hmm. if a mom calls and says baby's got stinky breath, might, might have to look at it. And you use Afrin? Yeah. What is your technique? Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if the Afrin is necessary. I use Afrin because I'm an ENT and we love the stuff, but I honestly don't know if it's necessary. I think pressure is probably fine. And then one, so one more weird complication, sorry to backtrack, is that I have read, and this is, this was um, attributed to use of a laser so a hot method i have read about getting floor of mouth seals or sort of ductoceles in the lingual gland outflow tracts from basically annealing off the the egress points of the ducts when getting too close when cutting the tie um, you know, I use that over nitrate. Do you use a hemostat? I don't. I don't use either of those unless I have to. I I don't think there's evidence about the hemostat, but I see how it's appealing sometimes to because you sort of clamped off the vessel already a little bit. But honestly, I use a groove director. I lift up the tongue. I have the baby swaddled, and have a nurse helping me. I use a headlight, and then. I snip anteriorly and then honestly for the posterior dissection, I usually mostly do a blunt dissection with my finger um, to make sure that I've released the entire posterior extent because I feel like, I feel like that way I have more feedback as to when I've actually gotten, you know, to muscle and I don't cut into muscle and there, there's been a few things written, of course, it's impossible to to get great data on this in infants, but they're, they're certainly on anatomical studies. Some of the sensory nerves are very, very close 
to the the muscle and right under the mucosa when you get sort of the junction of the tongue and the floor of mouth. And I don't want to cut those accidentally. So uh, I have leaned more towards doing blunt dissection at the end. And then I look, you know, I hold pressure. I look to make sure that I got that diamond shaped release in the floor of the mouth. And then I give the baby a sweeties on a pacifier. Actually, I've, I've switched since the clinical consensus statement came out, which recommended giving sweeties before. Also, I've switched and I, I, I give them sweeties sort of while we're getting set up to sort of prime those, you know, happy neurotransmitters. Can, uh, can you tell us what sweeties are for the listeners who may not be aware? It's sugar water. <laughs> Simple syrup for babies. They get a cocktail without any alcohol in it. And so we just, yeah, we, we dip their passy in it, or if they didn't bring a passy, we don't always have them in the Pixis, then I just dip my, my clean gloved finger in it and let them kind of suck on it. And then, you know, do the procedure, give them back the passy and the sweeties, hold pressure. I love it when they come with the, the pacifiers that you can put your finger on the inside because I can hold extra directed pressure in the little you know, hole in the center of the pacifier. And then once, once I think we have acceptable hemostasis, I have mom feed them. That has the, you know, has a lot of benefits. I feel like it helps with hemostasis additionally and kind of gives them time to stabilize any clot that may be forming. It gives them all the good oxytocin from nursing. It helps mom feel sort of comforted because she gets to snuggle with them and, and help them through their their pain. And, and like I said, I, I don't think that it's, it's too bad for the kids. I haven't had, you know, knock on wood, I haven't had kids who go on a nursing strike or won't eat or something like that, you know, as a result of the procedure. Now, you know, there's time and anything can happen. But I, I, I think it's relatively well tolerated. Again, so hard to test and a little infant. I mean, what are we going to, we can't, we can't even show them, you know, an assemblage of smiley faces. <laughs> but I think you so. hit the nail on the head earlier where you just don't want to miss other reasons for poor PO. Exactly. So like you said, tone, reflux, like, well, maybe they're falling off the latch because they're uncomfortable with reflux. You know, Maybe they're choking because they have a left or a laryngeal malacia. Yeah. And in that way, I actually think that we can really bring a lot to the table as ENTs because those are things that we're thinking about all the time and why I've, I've really appreciated working with pediatricians as well because they have this, you know, they have a different perspective on it and the things they're looking for are different than the things I'm looking for. And so I think it's it's nice to... Nice to load the boat, circle the wagons, you know, get have a wide sort of broad viewpoint on, hey, what's going on with this baby? Yeah. Yeah. Multidisciplinary approach for sure. But I, I, th I do think it is hard to do that. I mean, I agree. I think that multidisciplinary having all the hands are great. And I think as a new mom, it'd be really nice to have, what does the lactation consultant think? What does the speech pathologist think? But you know, sometimes these clinic visits are within two weeks of birth. You know, they kind of want to come in right away. And I'll be, I always get behind because I spend too much time on them compared to what we're scheduled. Do you ever have Lots to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> do you ever see patients that have had it? Like, what do you do you think that 
these things scar again like at, you know in terms of revision yeah. and like what you yeah. had what do you what, i you know i i think they they could there's no there's it's a, an, again frustrating there's no evidence about what to do post procedure in terms of do you do stretching exercises there you know there are people who swear by specific mobility exercises and i don't know i i'm not able to be guided by a randomized controlled trial on this. <laughs> so i i'm curious to know what you guys do i i tell i tell mom for 2 weeks every time either before or after or both baby feed starting the day after the procedure because I don't want the same day of the procedure I don't want them to disrupt any clot if there's clot there but I tell them to just finger sweep back and forth five or six times and try and break down any potential scar tissue and that's not much to do and it it's probably not doing anything and you know maybe over time I'll I'll change my practice and get more enthusiastic about more exercises Certainly, there there are people within the Academy of Otolaryngology who who have been doing ankyloglossy work for a lot longer than I do, who strongly believe that they're necessary. But I, but I just haven't been able to find published evidence of like a particular protocol that's any better than any other protocol. And so I just am sort of hesitant about adding more to the burden of being a new mom. Yeah, yeah, I do the same thing, and I. I... I must say, I, I do not see a lot of patients requiring revision. Yeah, I have them just do a little finger sweep under the tongue twice a day for like seven days. You know what I mean? But I agree. I don't have anything too extensive. And in terms of revision, I think I've only, you know, seen it in six, seven years, maybe twice. That's good. So, it, you know, now that being said, they're not all my own per se. You know what I mean? So I, I just, I don't think it's that common. And then if they are coming back, I, like you said, I think you have to think of other reasons for poor feeding because once people see something structural, like you said, the, there might be other functional things going on. Right. And, you know, I, I also think that there might be a placebo benefit to the procedure. I've had a couple patients where they feel like immediately the minute we finish the tie that everything is fixed and better. But I just don't know. I mean, because there's going to be some swelling and I feel like the baby often sort of has to relearn how to use their tongue. So I I tend to tell mom that I think it's going to be a little while, you know, days to a week or two before things are sort of optimized. And I, I do tell her to be very perfectionist about the latch in that time. And just because I... I you know, I I don't think that it's a magic bullet. You know, cutting the tie doesn't all of a sudden make baby know how to use the tongue if baby was having a hard time using the tongue before. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So what about lip ties? <laughs> oh, man. Is that going to open it? <laughs> Is that going to take us an hour to dive into? <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, the short answer is that there's there's not there's not a lot of evidence for lip ties. I have cut very few and it's when i i will i'll watch mom nurse baby and if baby just cannot flange their upper lip over the breast to get a seal then i will do it at the same time as the tie 
but I, you know, I just haven't been able to find a great reason to do it. My, my sister's a pediatric dentist. So I've talked to her about this too. And cause, cause moms will sometimes ask, well, is it, is there going to be a gap in their teeth? And, uh, mm-hmm. and the te- you know, the, the teaching and the evidence available in the dental literature is that that problem is going to fix itself, you know? And so I think, I think it's kind of a similar argument to, to the speech articulation error one where let's not, maybe we don't need to borrow trouble. Right. Yeah. Do you have, what are your thoughts on posterior tie? So is it maybe another 30 minute? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it, I think it suffers from a, like a PR problem. Because I think when an ENT hears posterior tie, we're like, well, do people not understand that, the, like, the tongue is attached to the mouth posteriorly? <laughs> like, of course it needs to be attached back there. And so I think it's, a, like, a, a language issue. And my interpretation is that it actually is more of a, like, a mobility issue where behind the sort of more visible portion of the frenulum there there might be a little more attachment of the mucosal layer to the you know and and maybe even the muscular layer to the floor of the mouth and that's why that's why I said I, I tend to go all the way back and even if there's only an anterior tie I tend to do that blunt dissection to try and make sure we get all the way back so that if there is some posterior sort of annealing I address that I have not done a lot of phrenectomies for phrenotomies for just posterior thickening yeah I don't think that I'm philosophically totally opposed to it so much as I just have found other reasons in those kids for them to have issues and so I've sort of wanted to take care of those first and you know there is a higher risk of bleeding and potentially, potentially what I'm doing by going all the way back is higher risk for pain too. I, I don't, you know, we, we are closer to those nerves, like I was saying, yeah. the sensory nerves on the, on the ventral tongue posteriorly. But uh, it's just been a little harder to justify in the cases I've had because those kids have had small posterior chins, have had crummy latches, and I've I've mostly sent them to lactation to see if we can optimize that first, just because it is a little bit, you know, it is a little bit more controversial. Again, I'm not totally opposed to it. I I do think that there can be mobility restriction posteriorly, but I, I don't know that it's the panacea that, you know, people on internet message boards sometimes think that it might be. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, that's where I'll definitely take the glove finger, just feel, I think the whole posterior thing, it's hard to really know, but it is kind of maybe a more of a thicker mucosa that covers it. You know, I guess that's what we're, we're thinking about. But again, it's like you said, it's the mother, baby, what's happening, what's going on, history that if n- making that little uh, release may help we'll see but I, I agree with you it, it it may or may not and I always tell the you know anytime I'm counseling this it may or may not change exactly the way they feel. 
like this may not be the home run. Exactly. Yeah. And like you said, with stuff that, you know, new moms, yeah, not just like a first time mom, but just have, you know, having a new baby. Yeah. It's a very exhausting time. You're very vulnerable. There's a lot of information out on different mom groups, different Facebook, different, you know, just sources. And so I think being, having a patient, you know, being able to come to see you and you have some, you know, some evidence or something to help them, like evidence-based decision-making to help them in this time, this is probably the best we can do, right? Because we, you know, cutting the tongue tie isn't necessarily, <laughs> but it's who and when and how to counsel. And I, I think everyone's just trying to do the best thing for their baby. And they worry that if they don't get the tongue tie cut, they're going to completely torpedo their breastfeeding relationship. And if that's important to them, that's, you know, a source of a lot of emotions. And so it, it I mean, it, it can be a real privilege to kind of walk with them through that. And also it can be, you know, difficult because if I, if I really don't think the tongue tie is going to help them, I feel kind of, you know, I feel a lot of empathy for them and I want to help solve the problem, but I can't, you know, we can, it's not always a solvable problem. Right. Right. Well, I think that that is super helpful and super informative. Um, Felicity, what are we missing? Are we missing anything else in terms of evaluation, workup, counseling? How can we, is there anything key that you're like, hey, remember this or what you've seen? If they're having poor milk transfer, whether it's because of the tongue tie or because of any other of the reasons we've talked about, tone or you know, baby being little or anything, then they have to be pumping because they will lose their supply if, if there's not effective milk extraction. And so, you know, if they want to continue to, to provide breast milk, then they have to be, they have to be emptying their breasts. And for, for most women, you, you know, it, it does vary, but for many women it's eight to 10 to 12 times a day that that has to happen. And so it's a big commitment. But that's counseling that, you know, if, if I'm sensing that this is really important to them, I want to make sure that they've heard that because I don't want us to, you know, have baby grow into their latch, but then there's no milk there because mom didn't keep it up. Cause that would be really heartbreaking. Right. And I guess for me, like the non-professional advice from a personal standpoint, the nipple creams after every after every feed was always helpful. Massage, definitely intermittent pumping was always helpful. A ton of water, like you mentioned in the beginning, mm -hmm. trying to relax as much as you can. They say, try to relax, it'll let down. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So easy to do that. <laughs> exactly, exactly. How can people find you? Well, they can come to Children's Dallas and I'm more than happy to see them. I also see patients on Fridays up in Frisco at the UT Southwestern THR facility there. We're building that practice, have a wonderful team up there, great facilities, and not much weight at all. I, I always have a ton of availability. So I'm happy, happy, happy to see people and um, really happy too. If there are any pediatricians listening, if you want to uh, reach out and have a discussion about any of your patients, I am 
always delighted to do that. Awesome. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for being here, Felicity. I, I admire your passion for the, for the topic and, and have learned so much and will be applying that to my practice as yeah. well. So thank you. I have a whole new time. set of questions to ask. Like I ignored the other half of the whole dyad here for <laughs> many years. <laughs> I, if I, I have, I have a dot phrase. It's dot tongue tie if you oh. want it and then feel free to modify it. It's, it's actually got too much stuff on it and I don't ask all, all of the questions on it now, but I do ask a lot of them sometimes. So awesome. Well, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. You can, you can find us on the socials. We are on Twitter at underscore backtable ENT. We are on Instagram. Our handle is underscore backtable ENT. So keeping that consistent. And you can find us anywhere where you find your podcasts, uh, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more. Please subscribe to our podcast and uh, rate us. Uh, send us your, your comments and your feedback. Send us suggestions for topics that you would like to hear about. And reach out if you want to come on the show. Yeah, we'd love to talk to you. 